Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Shell. And I'm Lisa. And we're back with your weekly dose of true crime from the true north. I just have to pause and say before we start, spring is here. And I am so excited. This has been the nicest week we've had all year. It's been amazing. The sun is shining. My mood is like 10 times higher than it was before. We're definitely riding our bikes to the beach this weekend and we're just parking it for the day. Yes, do it. It's going to be so nice. 20 degrees. I know. That's crazy. I love it. And also, some good news, I have a review to read from one of our listeners. So this is from Caroline, but probably Caroline en français. And she says, bravo pour les French-Canadian names. Which is awesome because I thought that we butchered them I th- so I thought bad. we butchered them too, but I mean, are we going to butcher this right now? I'm going to try <laughs> my best to read this out properly. So Caroline says, hey, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. J'adore vous écouter, surtout pour les épisodes où il y a des noms québécois. So that means I love listening to the episodes that have Québécois names, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I looked it up. You both are making me smile even if we are listening to cases that aren't typically funny. Just wanted to let you know that you are listened by French-speaking people as well. You're doing a great job. Thanks. A Mikel Mall, Caroline, from the Saguenay region in Quebec. Hey. I think that's better than what I would have done. I tried. And it's pretty good. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you, Caroline. So nice of you. Thank you. And I love that we have French-speaking listeners. Yeah. We'll try to include more Quebecois stories. Absolutely. Okay. So this week, I'm back to my old ways, and I'm diving into a missing persons case. This one seriously has me stumped. This couple not only disappeared, but their car, their kayak, and all of their belongings disappeared too, literally without a trace. Aliens? It could be. It could be an extraterrestrial (laughs) event. Immediately. Just beamed up. Aliens. (laughs) Yeah. It's wild. For this case, we're going back to the 1970s in Edmonton, Alberta where a young married couple was preparing to leave their hometown in search of a new life on the East Coast. This couple was known for their devious streak. They were rebellious. They were progressive thinkers with adventurous attitudes, and they had the cool factor you can imagine of a 20-something couple in the 70s. But when the couple doesn't turn up at their final destination, it begs the question, did one of their adventures go too far? Or were they met with foul play while out on the open road? This is the disappearance of Terry and Ron Yakimchuk. Take it away, girl. It was June in 1973, and a young couple was ready to set off on their next adventure. 
Terry and Ron Yakimchuk lived in Edmonton, Alberta, and they both worked in journalism. Terry was a reporter for the Edmonton Journal, and Ron was an editor at Poundmaker, an alt newspaper in Edmonton. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling raunchy tonight. <laughs> like I just uh, does he work like he's going to Pound Town? Yep. Like that's what I was like. The first thing that comes to mind. Poundmaker. Oh, yep, you heard that right. So Terry was 23 and Ron was 27, and they met at the University of Alberta working on the campus newspaper, The Gateway. They were what I would call a power couple. You know, that couple that everyone loves and would be like devastated if they broke up, and they really brought their friend group together. They were both quirky and inquisitive and a bit provocative in their ideas and loved to have a good time. Terry was a proud feminist who rolled her own cigarettes and had an impulsive streak. She had short cropped blonde hair, blue eyes, and wore round glasses. They like say in every article this specific thing that she rolled her own cigarettes. Like that was like the coolest thing she could do. But it it, like adds to her cool factor for sure. Mm -hmm. Ron had dark hair, dark eyes with a thin build. He was considered progressive in his ideas and an intellectual and maybe too provocative. But it didn't seem like that stopped him. When Ron was chosen to be editor of The Gateway, which was the newspaper that they were both a part of at the school, the student council of the University of Alberta actually squashed the decision for fear that his views would be too radical. What were his views? Probably really left, like way too far to the left kind of thing. Yeah. He was more just like super liberal for that time. Okay, right. And Ron basically said a big fuck you and started Poundmaker, in, as far as I can tell, his friend's home that doubled as a print shop and a co-op, and it became the (laughs) rival newspaper to the Gateway. No way. That's hilarious. Yeah. like Good for him. I think it's great. And they just seemed like a couple that was the epitome of cool. Like, fuck the establishment, let's make a difference Mm -hmm. kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Like, very 70s. But as this was the 70s in Edmonton, the couple was restless. They had accomplished what they wanted to in Alberta. They wanted to explore, travel, and start a new life in a new province. Terry and Ron were married and had friends getting married too. So they were ready to leave Edmonton behind and head east to the Maritimes. Their plan was to road trip across Canada in an old 1959 Volkswagen Beetle with a kayak strapped to the top. They would stop at a friend's wedding in Montreal and then head to the Maritimes to find a city to settle down in. Ron planned to get a teaching job and Terry would find a career working for the local newspaper. So from what I can tell, they didn't have a city in mind to go to in the Maritimes. Every source just says the Maritimes. So... (laughs) Just see where the road takes us, guys. But, like, exactly. What an adventure. But I think that's kind of their attitude, right? Like, they were just kind of like, okay, this is a general place that we want to live in. And we're just going to yeah. go and see what happens. Yeah, we'll stop and we'll we'll stay where, where it feels right. We'll know when we're there. Yeah, exactly. Like, go to the different coastal towns and see where they could maybe find work or something and settle down. Mm-hmm. So on June 9th, 1973, the couple packed up to leave, and their friends all gathered to see them off. 
they were taking bets on when the car would break down or whether the couple would make it in time for the wedding. Their friends made jokes about whether they would have a change of heart and actually stay in Edmonton. But Terry and Ron drove off on their adventure. So this was like a beater. Yeah, this is like a beat up old car. Um, It was like a dusty red color and definitely worse for wear. But like the thing was is that they strapped this huge six foot yellow kayak to the top of it. Okay, I can see the picture here. It's in a case as well. The kayak. The kayak? Yeah. Yeah, it's in like a, a bag or something. Yeah, so like... Oh my god, what? That, that is the oldest looking beetle I've ever for seen. For doing a road trip, like a cross-country yeah. road trip, yeah. I'd be... Yeah, I would be betting as yeah, well. Yeah, I'd be right in on that yeah, bet for totally. sure. Totally. And the thing was, though, that like that vehicle, if you saw it driving down a highway or something, would totally stand out. Yeah, I agree. And there were like boxes and household supplies stacked to the brim into the small back seat of the car. Like this was going to be a real road trip. Yeah, they were hauling it. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, they got, you can't even see through the back windows. They got it completely jammed. (laughs) No, no, like it reminds me of like a cartoon or something when like everyone piles the suitcases on top of the top of the car. The car, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's packed. It's packed to the brim. (laughs) Like, they put all their possessions in the backseat of this little car. Yeah, every inch. So on their way to Montreal, Terry and Ron stopped in to see more of their friends in Brandon, Manitoba. And then the next day, they arrived in Dryden, Ontario, mailing a postcard to their friend Rod Mickelberg with one word written on it, which was Nya. (laughs) So Nya? It's spelled yeah, N Y A H. Yeah, I looked up what it means, and essentially, <laughs> it's an es- expression of "I won." Really? Yeah. So this meant that they had made it to Ontario without the car breaking down. Yeah. And Rod owed them fifty dollars from the bet, which. I calculated is around 350 bucks today. Jeez. So that's a pretty good cash in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good one. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just have like code words with your friends, I guess. That was, that should was we, it. Should we bring that back? Like Lisa's coming over next time I see her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But that was the last time that anyone would hear from Terry and Ron, that postcard with one word on it. So the couple never ended up making it to their friend's wedding in Montreal. They never communicated with family or friends that they had made their way to the maritime provinces. And in fact, it was like they truly vanished without a trace. Them, their Volkswagen bug, and the kayak. Initially, friends and family weren't concerned when Terry and Ron didn't show up in Montreal to their friend's wedding. But after a while, they became worried because where could they be and why haven't they contacted anyone? Yeah. So family reported the couple missing weeks later, and it took months before the police started searching for the couple. Why? Well, if we think back to the 70s, like there aren't cell phones or 
fast modes of communicating. Yeah. And so I think also based on Terry and Ron's, you know, adventurous streak, like this was not totally out of the norm for them to do. Like to drop off the grid wasn't completely uncharacteristic of something that they would do. So I think it probably took the family a little while to report them. And then the police were kind of like, uh, like it wasn't super urgent for them, which I don't think is right. And they definitely wasted valuable time. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a couple months after someone vanishes and goes missing, like what are you going to find? Right. Like you totally lose. a long lose. time. Yeah, it's a long time and you lose valuable, you know, evidence that you might find otherwise. For sure. Or reports or tips or anything like that. Or like reliable witnesses. Yeah, exactly. When it's fresh. And also, since they were in a different province, like, you know, the family's in Alberta and the couple was last seen in Ontario, I imagine this also slowed the investigation even further. So Terry and Ron had always talked about traveling and had conversations about perhaps going all the way to Europe or into the States. But at the time, Ron didn't have a passport, only Terry did. So it would be a bit more difficult for them to leave Canada for Europe, although definitely not impossible. (laughs) So I have a little story for you. Okay. Back in 1998, so obviously not the 70s, but you know, before 9-11 and everything got so crazy, My family and I went to Jamaica and my mom was having her ID renewed and she just had that form with the renewal statement on it Yeah. and they did not want to let her into the country. So we flew all the way to Jamaica and they were like, nope, you're not coming in. You got to go on a plane back to Canada. Whoa. And luckily, like our best family friend is a pilot for Jamaica Air and he basically talked us in, like talked the guards in Jamaica to let my mom through what so that happened but there could literally be no record of my mom ever entering Jamaica there was no identification pass like they didn't put anything into their system they literally just let her through the airport and that was in 1998 yeah 1998 so imagine like how much more relaxed security would be in Canada like Yeah, in the 70s. So, like, it is a possibility, even if he didn't have a passport, for him to somehow get on a plane and go to Europe. Without any record. Yeah, without any record of him. Wow. I remember when you didn't even need a passport, though, to travel between Canada? You just needed, like, a birth certificate or something? Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. That's crazy. I know. So, but even if they had traveled to Europe, though, like, it's not like they were trying to run away from their friends and family. They were all close with them. They would have been in touch with them at some point. Totally. And that's the thing, too, is it's, you know, maybe okay for the couple to be out of communication for, you know, maybe a month or whatever, but not for, like, an extended period of time. If they were sending a postcard when they were in Ontario, they would have been more in touch with them. Totally. I believe so, too. So the police believe that the couple's last location was Dryden, Ontario. The cops have no idea whether they continued driving towards Montreal through the Highway 1 or if they decided to dip into the U.S. and take roads that would bring them back up to Canada from Detroit. Mm -hmm. So Dryden is pretty west in Ontario, so it's still 2,000 kilometers away from Montreal. And the drive is southeast, 
so they definitely could have decided to reach Quebec from the States, since Highway 1 or the Trans-Canada Highway at the time wasn't paved like it is today. Apparently, the highway was quite remote and narrow at that time, not great conditions for driving a beat-up Volkswagen Beetle with a gigantic kayak on top. Yeah. They could have decided to take a different route and go Mm -hmm. the more, like, direct, kind of more paved, safe route into the States. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, would there be a record of them crossing the border that way into the States? Well, at the time, in 1973, there were no records kept of people crossing from Canada into the U.S. by car. Ever? Ever. On nope, land? There were no, no records. What? No records on land. Yeah, he oh just my drove on in. God, you guys. Uh, yeah, so that uh, was a dead end. Yeah. Okay, well, what about their bank accounts? Were they using them? So since being in Ontario, neither Terry's nor Ron's bank accounts were ever accessed again. Ron actually even had a life insurance policy, and it has never been cashed in. Okay, so that's not looking good. No, and remember what I said about Terry and Ron being this power couple and their friends, right? Like their friends were their group. They were like part of their family. So their Mm -hmm. friends were not going to sit by and do nothing. So the group of them checked to see whether Terry or Ron's driver's licenses were ever renewed or they were, you know, using social assistance, like welfare or anything like that, or even if they were paying taxes. So their friends like started their own investigation and checking these things out. Did they find anything? Unfortunately, there was no luck. There was zero activity from either Terry and Ron, at least using those names what (laughs) i'm yeah uh i mean (laughs) we'll get to theories later but it's a possibility that they could be using different identities what would their reason be though why maybe this will shed a little bit of light though so one of the friends from the group back home in Edmonton, Winston Garaluk, said, quote, Terry told me that they were going away and nobody would find them for a long while. Very ominous. Super ominous and begs the question, did they want to disappear? Huh, interesting. Hmm. Which wouldn't be as tough in that time in the 70s. Yeah. Like to get new identities, start over, remember the case that you did with the guy who got a new identity in the States. Yeah. And they crash-landed the plane. Yes. Yarek Ambrosik. Yarek Ambrosik, right. Right, yeah, Yarek. He got a completely new identity and started a new life in the States. For a long time, too. For a long time. It's totally possible that they could have disappeared, got new identities, and started over. They could be in the States. They could be in Europe. They could literally be anywhere on a freaking island somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. But if they did this, they did an extremely good job. And in my opinion, like, that would have had to have been planned. Right. It just doesn't, like, to be not premeditated, like, to be on the fly. Like, okay, let's just ditch our lives and ditch our identities and start fresh. I mean, maybe they were impulsive. Like, they kind of lived on the edge. But to do it that well makes me think that they would have had to plan it ahead of time. Yeah. And I wonder if, did they check for any signs of them planning I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this theory was ever investigated by the police. Oh, okay. We'll get to the investigation. It hasn't really been a great situation. 
Okay, so they didn't see, they didn't, they never found the Volkswagen and the kayak. Did anybody see them then? Like, were there any sightings? Well, there was a tip that came in from a woman in Ontario named Vivian McCrory. So she said that she believes that she spotted the couple with their Volkswagen Beetle on a highway near Perry Sound, which is in Ontario. So she describes that she saw the car on the side of the road in July of 1973. But she could have been mistaken for the month. They were last seen in June, but, you know, with witness statements, sometimes it could be a little bit uncertain. There was Terry, Ron, and another man standing at the side of the car, and they had Alberta license plates. And she remembers this situation really well because her husband had to slam on his brakes to swerve around the car because it was still in the highway. Oh no. Yeah, that would be memorable. Yeah, you would remember that. And also, there were missing persons posters up looking for these two in that area. So I think she also kind of would have had it in her mind looking for a couple with a red Volkswagen Beetle. So Vivian says that she calls the police to file this report saying that there's this couple that looks like the couple that's missing and that they're with another man on the side of the road. And she does say that the front... um, the hood of the car in the front is actually propped up so kind of like they're having car troubles but there was no other car no no other car and that's a great call because yeah where did this other guy come from and it was on a highway yeah on a highway if it's on a highway like what are you doing walking on a highway just stopping and helping a bug that's pulled over no 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 he would have been a passenger yeah he could have been unless they picked up a hitchhiker along the way (gasps) oh my god Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. I just solved it. Oh my god. They would totally be the type of people to pick up a hitchhiker. To pick up a hitchhiker. Oh, I got goosebumps. Oh, I did too. I mean, they're going cross country. Like, it makes sense if they were like, yeah, we'll take you there. We're headed in that direction. Oh my god. I didn't even think of that theory. You're so brilliant. It just happened. Oh god. Okay, so did she get a description of the other guy that was with them then? Not that I know of with the other guy. She was pretty certain, though, about the description of Terry and Ron. Like, she said that they looked exactly like the couple that, you know, was missing. And the short, cropped blonde hair and the tall, thin build on Ron with dark hair. But the third guy, we don't really have a lot of information about him. Have no idea who he was. Was he an innocent bystander? Or could it have been something more sinister? Right. Well, they would have gotten a really good look because when you slam on your brakes first of all you're pissed off and you want to like look at the people like what the fuck buddy so they would have for sure got a good look at them yeah you get a good look so vivian says that she called the police to file the report and they didn't even take her name or phone number why god honestly there's a lot of just police incompetence in this like you know such a late start to even begin a full-on search for this couple and yeah they just I don't think they were taking her tip very seriously even though she is certain so there's an article from 2007 so this is like what 30 years Mm -hmm. later quoting Vivian again as she recalls the situation so many years later 
So the police have confirmed now, well, in 2007, that they will follow up on Vivian's tip. Although, like, I'm not sure what's left to do so many years later. Yeah, what good is that going to do now? Like, are they just going to kind of look on that road or that stretch of road where she says that they saw them? Go back to that highway? Yeah, but, like, what's going to be left there? Like, I just don't know what... I, I just feel like it's lost. The tip would have been effective in the moment and now it just doesn't feel like anything's going to come of it right so it has been suspected that the couple might have accidentally drove their car or something like that into lake superior because the car hasn't been found so people are trying to theorize you know where did the car go well what about the kayak it would have floated and that is a good call. The kayak would have floated totally. Didn't even right? think about that. Yeah. And also, like, in a great lake, it's super hard to prove that you drove your car in there. Like, it's deep and it's fast. It's huge. So, like, where would you start looking? Mm-hmm. So, there was another tip that came from a friend that they visited in Dryden, Ontario. And this was the last person to see Terry and Ron alive. So retired Lieutenant Colonel Sid Stephen says that the couple visited him at the Canadian Forces base and they talked about their driving route. So Sid actually warned them about taking the highway along the north shore of Lake Superior and told them to try an alternate route by heading south into the U.S. along the lake's south shore. So apparently at the time, Ron and Terry were pretty disinterested in this new route and they didn't want to venture into the states like at the time i guess maybe at that time in the 70s like the u.s they just had no interest in going into the u.s okay but the car was in bad condition so could it have broken down somewhere remote and then something happened like i'm just thinking like depending on what route they took it doesn't really matter like what happened like something had to have happened because they did not end up at their destination. If they did take the route into the U.S., like their friend Sid had, you know, mentioned to them, it's unclear whether police ever checked this route to see if there was any sign of them or the car. It's not really shocking either. No, not shocking. And also, like, you know, that's a long way to go Mm -hmm. and a long route to check, like... You know, but I think they should have done their due diligence and actually been like, okay, let's cover all of our bases. Let's see if they might have done this. Like, what Mm -hmm. are the routes that they could have taken? The tip that Vivian gave and like where the location of that sighting was, where was that in relation to the friend, like the last sighting of them? Was it before or like was it further along the route? Who was further along? So in my understanding of it that would have been further along towards Montreal but I'm gonna double check for you because that's actually a really good question and something I didn't like Vivian would have been further along which would make sense because it was later to get from Dryden Ontario to Perry Sound Ontario is looks like a 17 hour drive when I'm looking at Google Maps so that would have mean that they took the north route through Canada along Lake Superior and they did not go into the States. If she's right and that she saw them at that point that she saw them, then they would not have gone into the U.S. to take that route. Where is Perry Sound? 
Perry Sound is not far from Toronto. It's just north of and Toronto. And then Dryden? Dryden, Ontario is like very, very west Ontario. So it's like closer to Manitoba, like closer to Winnipeg. Well, it's not shocking that she did see them pulled over with car troubles though. Like it's, we, everyone expected that there was going to be an issue with the car. So her statement, yeah. that witness statement, it seems really reliable really credible to me and also like Perry Sound is not that far from Montreal so Perry Sound to Montreal is a six-hour drive they were close to Montreal which was like where they were going to see their friends get married so in my opinion like okay if she saw them in this area in Perry Sound driving on the highway they were obviously trying to go somewhere it would make sense that okay what happened there what happened was it that their car broke down they asked for help and it was the wrong person that they asked for help yeah someone just took advantage of that yeah if they went down in some body of water that kayak would have showed up yes i think you're right because one of the other theories is that they could have taken the kayak out on the lake and drowned by accident Mm, right but then you know who someone would have found a kayak at some point that kayak would have been found yeah yeah like it doesn't just sink I mean, there are just so many unknowns in this case. It's, it's, yeah, there's not a lot of evidence. Or aliens. Or aliens. (laughs) A UFO came out of nowhere and beamed them up and they are now in outer space. I mean, there are so many possibilities. Have you been watching alien movies? Like, no, it's like just been listening to like, you know, cult and alien podcasts and, you know, folklore, all the like different podcasts Mm -hmm. that cover stuff like that so in terms of evidence in this case like we said there just isn't a lot so police have actually collected dna from terry and ron's family members to check unidentified remains so far there have been no matches in 2009 police put out a statement that there were unidentified remains of a couple in south carolina and the police used dna samples to test whether it was terry or ron the family was unconvinced it was them when they saw photos of the bodies and they were right but a good thing came from this so i didn't know this but unless there is evidence of a crime in canada you can't have missing persons dna profiled in a crime lab so this was actually a way to get terry and ron's familial dna into the system so that they can actually test against others in the doe network oh because of that couple that they were trying to match it with exactly so even though it wasn't a match their dna like the familial dna is now in the system so they can run that against other unidentified persons that's great but i'm surprised that they weren't even considering that it was something criminal yeah i mean again when there just isn't any trace of anyone (sighs) i think and especially so many years ago like this is definitely obviously a cold case and it's been revived in the last you know 20 years i guess like from the 2000s kind of onwards but again like there just isn't anything to look for it's so baffling to me like to actually have no trace of that car and that kayak and all that stuff like for everything Mm -hmm. to not turn up like not one bit of it it just is like what the hell happened the family of terry and ron they still deserve answers and they hold out hope that one day they'll know for sure what happened to the spirited couple until then we are still left wondering whose crime is it anyway 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We will be back next week with our next case. Until then, follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. And if you'd like to support our show, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Whose Crime Pod. Bye! Toodles!